Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today we're going to be talking about hostages and hostage negotiation, and I'm talking about the real kind of hostages that we see on the TV news screen. Now, I realize that that sounds like a strange topic for a conversation about leadership, and it is. However, I think you're going to see that the principles of successful hostage negotiation have some pretty powerful implications for leaders, not in terms of taking people hostage or being a hostage, but in terms of that whole psychological hostage that we often feel at work, as well as some issues around inspiring and managing conflict and so on. So my guest today is George Colreaser. George is an organizational and clinical psychologist, a distinguished professor of leadership and organizational behavior at IMD Business School in Switzerland, and he's a consultant to a number of global companies. Now, George is a thought leader on high-performance leadership, on conflict, on dialogue, and negotiation. And he's also a police psychologist and a hostage negotiator. He's worked in over 100 countries and on five continents. And he's been a frequent speaker at the World Business Forum, the World Economic Forum, and the United Nations. His work has gotten a lot of press. And the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Financial Times, Forbes, he's held his own live call-in talk show for, for 10 years in the U.S. And he's done two TEDx talks. So, George, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Wanda. It's good to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And I'm sure everybody is as fascinated about this as I am. So you have this background as a real live hostage negotiator. Tell me about that experience. Okay. Well, I was actually trained in mediation. I was interested in doing mediation. So I've been working with domestic violence. And the goal was to have psychologists enter with police if people agreed and then uh, try to mediate and reduce the family conflicts and homicides. And so I became a hostage negotiator by accident in that in doing that, uh, there were situations where uh, a hostage, physical hostage taking came up and I was involved in uh, the negotiation where I myself was held hostage. So I became so interested, I decided to move into that area and help create and build the hostage negotiation teams. So did I hear you correctly that you have been held hostage? Yes, four times. Four times. Oh, my goodness. Now, that sounds stupid, doesn't it, Wanda? No, it sounds like you like to put yourself in harm's way in the service of a well, cause, I'm I was, hoping. I was dealing with domestic violence, so this meant going with the police into volatile situations. It could look very calm, and if they thought it was safe, I thought it was safe, they would leave. But people can hold uh, a, a, hide a weapon under a, a couch, go into the kitchen, grab a knife, um, have a gun somewhere. So in those four instances... Uh, I was uh, faced with that. But here's the thing for leadership, and that's how you gave such a nice introduction. Physical hostage-taking is actually, for many people, a kind of mysterious process, but it's not. It's really the art and science of leadership. What does a hostage negotiator have to do? Well, first of all, connect. 
create a bond with the hostage taker. Even if you don't particularly like them, you still have to forge a bond with them. And then you have to understand their motivation. What is it that drove them to take hostages? Happy people don't take hostages. You know for sure it's a grievance, it's a loss. And then you do concession making. You engage in the process of finding a solution to help get the hostage taker to come out, give up their weapons, give up their hostages, knowing full well that they're probably going to go to prison. Now, the art and science of hostage negotiation demonstrates that we can get about a 95% success rate as measured both by the FBI Quantico and by Interpol here in Europe. So that's one thing. 95% is a pretty good track record for getting people to change their mind and give up their hostages. Now, the interesting point for leadership is that you don't have to have a gun to your head to be a hostage. Uh, you can be a psychological hostage to a boss, to a client, to a customer, to a situation. In personal situations, you can be a hostage taker to uh, all kinds of situations, and mostly you can be a hostage to yourself. If you're filled with grief, with shame, with guilt, the same techniques that are used in physical hostage taking can be used in the psychological hostage taking. So I would ask all your listeners to think for a second, when have they felt powerless, helpless, like a hostage to a personal or professional situation? And it's more common than we would like to admit. Yeah, I had a case yesterday where that's exactly what's going on. In fact, the truth of the matter is over the course of the day, I had two cases like that. So I I think it's a more common scenario than we think we do. All right, so I want to go back to these principles about hostage negotiation, and then we'll we'll roll it into the leadership for sure. Okay. You said there's connect, there's understand your hot the hostage taker's motive, and then there's concession making. Connect. How do you connect with someone that you cannot like at this moment in time? So, so how how do you do that? (laughs) That's a very good question. You have to be trained. Like Carl Rogers trained people in in unconditional positive regard. He always said there wasn't a person he could connect to, even if they were very, very detached and, and a psychopath. Here, here's the thing. You have to be able to have a common goal. And you do this by showing interest. You do this by asking questions. You don't connect simply by pushing or being a bully. It's about being curious. It's about asking questions and showing interest. Now, it doesn't work in all cases. There's a 95% success rate. Of the other 5%, it's people who want to commit police suicide. That is, they're afraid to commit suicide and they want to do something dumb to get the police to kill them. So it's the ability to create empathy around a common goal. So the first time I was taken hostage was with a man who was holding a nurse hostage because he was in a very psychotic state, having been stabbed by his ex-wife. She told him the kids didn't love him, and he went into a major psychotic break. With a few good questions to ask him, how does he want his kids to remember him? How does he want to think about his kids uh, in, in the future? And when he got very angry about that, he finally recognized he did want to see his kids. He did love his kids. 
so he started to come back to a more rational mindset, and we got a resolution in about a half hour. But you see, you have to listen to what the loss was. This man was in deep grief because he was not going to see his kids again. His ex-wife said the kids don't love him, etc. You know how it goes in domestic disputes. Yeah. So the thing is, you have to, as a hostage negotiator and as a leader, listen to the pain in other human beings. That's the key. If you can't hear the grievance, and you can't just say, I understand. That's, those are useless words. You have to be able to communicate that you are able to connect to that person's pain, as crazy as it might seem. But I've never so seen a hostage situation not preceded by a loss. Okay. Well, and that makes sense to me. I mean, I see yeah. people who are in lots of pain, and loss is, in many ways, it's in lots of places. Some of it is quite deep, and some of it is not as deep as others. And that ability yeah. to listen to the loss, as opposed to a leader trying to justify the reasons yeah. we've made the changes and so on, which is not listening. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. that you say, well, George, the words, I understand, I actually think backfire. Yes. Well, so, well, when you say, I understand, we don't fully understand anybody's pain until they put words to it. So I, I, we, we train leaders and we train hostage negotiators not to use expressions to sort of placate or make people feel better. So rather than say, I understand, it's, well, how is this for you? How is this loss affecting you? For example, in a merger and transition, always grief, major conflict, major hostage taking, a psychological hostage taking. So as a leader, you can't say to someone who's losing their job or going through a merger and acquisition who's very upset that you understand. You, you don't fully understand. What you can say is, help me understand what you're losing. What's the pain? And, Wanda, there's a very interesting secret to change management, and that is before you sell the benefit of the change, listen to the pain. Understand as much as possible what the pain the person is going through. And each individual is going to have their own perspective on that pain. Great. That is (laughs) the single best advice I've ever heard on change. Because people do okay. experience it in different ways. They have different senses of loss for that one. Right. Fabulous. Listen and to leader, and leaders And leaders try to sell the benefit without understanding the pain. What does it mean for you to not be in the role of a leader? What does it mean for you to lose the name of your company that you've been working with for 30 years and now you, you have to change the name or you have to move to another city? Uh, being able to show that compassion, that empathy, is such a key aspect. Just like you don't want to say to people, calm down. You never want to say, calm down. You want to say, what is upsetting you? Why are you so angry? Why are you throwing things? Why are you uh, uh, expressing such rage? To get into their mindset. And hostage negotiators are trained to understand and profile what is in the mindset that drives very destructive behavior. Like I said in the beginning, happy people don't take hostages. So we have to know what is the pain behind it that's driving that. Right. And you have to be at a place that you feel like there's no other option. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is behavioral economics in action, by the way, because yeah. in behavioral economics discovered already in 1992 with the Nobel Economics Prize that 
loss is the most powerful uh, stimulus for making for people used for making decisions. We would like to think we're rational beings. They proved we're not. We would like to think we're doing this from an irrational point of view, but we're not. We're driven by past losses, anticipated losses, or the losses that are happening uh, in the immediate now. So leaders have to really be able to listen to another human being's pain, and many are not able to hear that. They're not able to connect with it. So, George, you train leaders. You've done this for ages. You interact with some of the best around the world at IMD, I know. Why do you think we're so bad at being able to tune into the pain that other people are feeling? Well, the brain, the, the neuroscience one of, of leadership is really the cutting edge. I just finished a program here in Lausanne with 60 top leaders from all over the world. We offer this program 10 times a year. And they're coming from all these countries, different countries, everything from board members on down. And the brain hates pain. Let's be clear. So people want to avoid pain. They don't want to feel pain. And so they tend to deny it. But high performers engage in pain. They have to be able to seek pain, whether that is in feedback, getting tough feedback, or facing the challenge of learning a talent. And as we look at the different generations, we see how critical that is from generation to generation. So the point is, when you listen to another person's pain, it does what? It triggers your own pain. So when someone is moved to tears, or they suddenly get angry, or they express their fear, or their sadness, that can be a trigger for you to feel that pain in your brain, especially if you are empathetic. Now, if you're a narcissist, it's going to be different because the, the pain doesn't go very deep. Uh, and so you can just go through one pain after another. But people hate to feel another person's pain because it triggers their own pain. I think sometimes leaders also are afraid of losing control. And they're afraid sure. that if I admit that this decision that I've been a part of is causing pain then they feel yeah. like they can't hold the decision or they can't go ahead with it or they lose control of what's actually going to happen. Yeah. And I yeah. think there's a lot of drive to maintain control. Is that you agree with that or not? I couldn't agree with you more. That loss of control is one of the big griefs. We see this from road rage to not having choices for change or, or all kinds of things in which people feel they don't have control, and then they have actually a grief reaction to that. And it can lead to all kinds of explosive uh, natures. You tell somebody you should do this or you have to do this, it can provoke all kinds of things. And so leaders have to be able to use the words to keep connecting. And you know this, Wanda, I've, I know you, you, you've looked at this and teach this, that the number one reason people, leaders fail, number one, is they don't really connect. They don't really bond. And we know that leaders have to bond. They have to connect, even if you don't like the person. The secret is bonding with people who, is your, who are your enemies or is your enemy, to turn them into an ally. And the great mediators, the great conflict managers, the great leaders, like Nelson Mandela, 
some of the others who Gandhi and so forth, Martin Luther King, they were able to connect to people who they didn't necessarily agree with or like, but they found a common bond. And ultimately, they tend to like one another once that happens. Right. Um, Adam Kahane was a guest on the show several months ago, and he goes into some of the world's highest conflict places and brings people who literally hate each other and are trying to kill each other to the table to talk about the problem. And Adam says exactly as you say that we may not agree on a whole lot, but we can agree that there's a problem that we both want to get solved. And yeah, it's just finding that common perfect. connection there with the problem is exactly what you're talking about. There's yeah. something in everyone, as hard yeah. as it may be to the find common. on occasion. <laughs> you have, the, the, the common goal drives the connection. Uh, if you can't find that common goal, then there's a problem. You have to keep searching, but there's always going to be a common goal if you right. keep searching. Yeah, and we often and say see, common some goals. Of those, some of the basic techniques that the hostage negotiator use, for example, is asking questions. Leaders who don't show curiosity, don't ask enough questions, are very much limited. Giving choice. Wow, this is so important. Giving people a choice. And for many people, that is their sense of loss of control that you talked about. So most, well, I would say all hostage situations that are resolved by negotiation, are done so by the hostage taker making a decision to come out. It's not with the hostage taker saying, now, if you don't give up, we're going to send the SWAT team in, etc. That power move is going to provoke violence. So it's giving people choice. And sometimes in those questions, asking questions where you're going to get a no. No is a blessing. No is a wonderful reaction because you know where that person stands. And many times I would prefer to have someone say no than yes, because I know what the truth is. I know how they really feel. Ah, that is But I'm not afraid of no. Leaders should not be afraid of no, and it's exactly what you said before, that they, they may no feels like they're losing control. Somebody says no, you just keep talking. You keep engaging. And as a leader, you have to be able to like to be re- humiliated, to be rejected, all of those negative things people do to trigger you into a, amygdala hijacks or emotional reactions. So when somebody attacks you, says they hate you, they're angry with you, they don't want to work with you, what's the next transaction? It's a question. Why not? What have I done to upset you? What is it that you need? Questions are the most powerful tool hostage negotiators have. That's fabulous. There's a lot in there. I know. To I know. I know you know. A lot in there. I, I so do believe I, uh, that. I'm, I'm summarizing it here in a in a very short course, but you see the basic principles. I see the basic principle. I do believe with you that the ability to ask really good questions that get people to talk, yeah. and you do that from a gentle yeah. curiosity, not from a pointed yeah. threat veiled in your question, is one of the masters of leadership. Master points of leadership. Um, because yeah. that's how you find information, that's how you get motivation, that's how I get everything. And with you, I believe also choice is really important. I don't think you can drive change successfully without giving people some choice about what they do in the execution of change. But I want to go back to something you said, that power moves or threats don't work. 
that that just leads to escalation and more violence. That's an interesting point. Well, when someone makes a power play or they're a bully, of course, they can get an adaptation of a fear response. I'm often asked the question, do, do leaders who use fear get a success? Well, they can get success, but only on a temporary basis, not sustained high performance. The leader has to create psychological safety. And we know leaders often have a person effect, nonverbal, other things in which they communicate a threat. So people don't feel psychologically safe. And you can't know this without good feedback. So that leaders have to be trained to create the psychological uh, sense of safety. But then they also have to be trained to show caring and daring, 100% of each. Because if you're too caring but not daring, you're not going to be a good leader or the other way around. And when you're caring, that means you deliver pain and people say, thank you. Give me more pain. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Because they see the benefit of the pain, the, the yeah. feedback, any good talent development, whether it's language, sports, medicine, music, tough feedback is the way we grow. Yeah. This comes and, back to the whole notion that so the tough feedback is the way you grow. You were talking about before that pain is a good thing, that high performers yes. aren't afraid of pain. And if you look yeah. at athletes and you listen to the elite athletes in the world, what they talk about is that willingness and ability to go through pain because it's inevitable. And that constant, unrelenting feedback, because that's the only way they get to be great performer. Same thing for leaders. Exactly. You, you named it exactly. And what we have, and you see this in different cultures. I worked a lot around the world, so I, I love to study cultures. I have to be honest here and say that Americans are getting a little too soft in that very often they, especially the millennials, they want the result without any pain. And you hear people talk about, well, I want to be good at this, but I don't want to go through the pain of learning it. And so, you know, one of the things we don't have as many cultures still maintain is the ability to endure the pain of learning something, to go through the challenges. And they're not so soft in the way they expect something to happen. And, okay. and I think as parents out there who are training leaders, we have to train our kids how to endure pain to get a goal, to have a vision, think about something which is basic in leadership, and be able to go through the pain of doing it always with a secure base. So I'm a very strong advocate of psychological safety. I call that, uh, which is one of my books, uh, the secure base leader, how you create that psychological safety by caring and daring. Okay, so caring and daring. All right, fair enough. I want to flip the, um, and we're going to come back to this one in the second half of the show, but I want to come to this notion of... Am I, am I going too fast? No, you're doing great. No. You're doing great. Okay, thanks. I want to come to this notion of what if I am feeling a hostage to a boss? So I'll give you a case in point. I had a person yesterday who is, whose boss, by, her, by the description is sounding a bit like a bully and she is feeling absolutely held hostage to that boss. 
and walking on eggshells, not to do the wrong thing or generate the wrong mood or, you know, get a lot of criticism. What's your advice to somebody who is feeling that they are psychologically hostage? Okay. First of all, get a secure base separate from the whole situation. Somebody who you trust, somebody who can help you think through the strategy of how you're going to deal with that. Then you decide that you're going to deal with this conflict. You're not going to accept the bullying. You're going to, with respect, what I call put the fish on the table. I'm a strong advocate that you have to get the difference, the conflict out on the table, go through the bloody, smelly mess of cleaning it for the great fish dinner at the end of the day. So you don't attack the person. You use a question. Would you like to know how to get my best work to help you succeed? And the boss would typically say yes. If they say no, then you ask, well, why not? So if you would like to get the best out of me, I need something from you. Oh, really? What is that? Well, I don't know if you're really willing to hear it. Are you? You don't give in right away. Sure, I want to hear it. Okay, you're pushing me too much. You're too domineering. You don't ask me what my opinion is. You don't give me space to grow. Whatever it is that you expect or need. The problem, Wanda, is that too many people avoid the fish. They avoid the conflict, and they keep that fish under the table, and it becomes a smelly, toxic environment to to work in. But you have to be able to put that fish on the table. I had a somebody who was wanting to teach, be a, a junior professor, and he wasn't getting the promotion. I mean, year after year, this went on for three years. And he said, how, what do I do? And I said, well, have you ever talked to your boss about why he, you're always being overlooked? And he said, well, no, he just would get upset. And I said, well, you've never really done that. So it's obvious you have to sit down and have a conversation, really. So we practice it. In 10 minutes, he practiced what he would say. Two days later, he went in and asked the boss if he could talk to him and said, look, I am not getting promotions. I would like to get a promotion. Why is it you keep turning over me? Do you ignore me? And the boss said, oh, I never, I didn't know you were interested. And then he said, but, and, and you, you need more experience in these areas. And that was the first time he had ever had that feedback, Wanda. Then he could do something about the problem. The boss was not against him. The boss, not being a good boss, did not say early enough that you should need more experience in these areas. You need to d- develop this ability to deal with students. Now he has the feedback to do something about it. Always put the fish on the table, but with respect. You're not slapping people in the face. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, it's interesting that you say it takes some time thinking about how to say this and hopefully with a safe yeah. person who can help you get it in the right tone of voice so that it's with right. respect. And that seems to be a really critical part of, of and, the, and the story. Wanda, and Wanda, role, role play, role play, role play. Practice it one, two, three times. Play your boss. Play the, Play yourself. Practice it in so many ways. We know in the whole world of sports and music and medicine, practice is the only way you develop the talents. We don't do that in business. We don't let people do enough role-playing and practice a difficult conversation. 
So they go in for a negotiation, a difficult conversation, and they immediately make the wrong uh, statement, and it provokes a negative reaction. Great, a lovely point to take a break. So let me kind of try to summarize here. We've been talking about physical hostage negotiation as well as psychological hostage. And the important point here for leaders, just to summarize this, is this ability to connect even with somebody you don't think, uh, don't like necessarily, don't necessarily appreciate. And it's about asking questions, understanding what their real motivations are, and most importantly, understanding the sense of loss. And then... Um, if you are being feeling hostage to someone else, it's being able to carefully, with respect, put the fish on the table. And again, we're right back to finding a way to say it and asking questions and asking questions and asking questions till we get to the bottom of it. My guest today is George Cole Reeser, and he's a professor at IMD in Switzerland, as well as a renowned speaker in all sorts of places. We'll be right back. And when we come back, I want to talk about inspiring instead of holding hostage. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel, and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back to the show. With me today is George Cole Reeser. And as we've been saying, George is a hostage negotiator, trained as such, and now a professor at IMD in the business school in Switzerland, and having written a number of books as well along the way. We've been talking about physical hostage taking, as well as psychological hostage taking. Um, Not that I believe leaders are necessarily always intentionally holding people psychologically hostage, but it happens at any rate. So, and we were talking about what do you do if you feel that you are being held psychologically hostage from a leader. And one of the scores in this one we said is that leaders need to create a sense of psychological safety. And there's a lot being talked about in psychological safety after the Google study and the report that psychological safety is one of the five factors that makes for effective teams. So, George, you teach about this and you've written about this one. Can you give us some hints beyond caring and daring about how to create psychological safety? Okay, so you mentioned the the Google Aristotle program and, and all the work they did in psychological safety, and this is becoming a, a very key factor. It's created by, first of all, showing interest in the other person. You make the other more important than yourself. It's service leadership. It's I want to help you, and I don't put myself above you. Uh, It's relationship-based. Secondly, it's filled with this idea that you can manage your own emotions so that you give a sense of calmness. Even if you're not calm, you have to present yourself as calm. And you have to be able to use language that shuts down the search for negativity or danger in the brain. I think it's so clear now the brain is fundamentally negative, looking for pain and danger to survive. But if we live that way, we're not going to thrive. We're going to always be living with worry and anxiety. So psychological safety means you shut the brain's drive to look for danger down. And that's done through secure bases. It can be a a person. It can be a place. It can be an event. It can be a memory. There's thousands of possible things that we can use or people, that's the best, in order to feel safe and not threatened like a child with a parent where the child feels in danger, but the parent creates that security. So what what Google found was that you have to create respect, and the smartest person in the room is often the most destructive team member. As a matter of fact, they tend not to hire the smartest people to work in teams. They maybe shove them off somewhere to do their uh, invention. But what you have to do is give people the same amount of time of talking to spread out the respect and give that sense of inclusion. And that's how you really uh, create that safety. The other thing that's so important is being emotionally available. That's why if you are a leader who is detached, aloof, filled with pain, filled with lack of joy, not finding meaning and purpose in what you're doing, you're not going to have emotional availability. You're going to be driving for results too much and not show interest in the person. I I think the other thing, which I'm sure you know, is that there's been a big switch in focus for senior leaders, and that is we no longer put them to focus on shareholders. Shareholders don't come first. And customers don't come first. Who comes first? The employees. You are serving the employees when they feel safe, 
when they're developing their talent talents, they're going to give the customers the best service they can. Yeah. Well, do I you agree with talking. that, or is that? Oh, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with you that the research is leading that direction, that the companies who are adopting this notion that senior leaders are of service to the employees, that you protect the employees and they will deliver for your customers and your shareholders and they'll save on retention costs and you'll have more motivation and everything. The data are solidly there and companies are beginning to appreciate it, but boy, do we have a long way to go to actually put that in practice on the ground. You're right on that. But you know, one way to train that emotional intelligence is to help leaders in a group feel safe to cry. Talk about their pain. As Warren Bennis talked about, talk about their crucibles. What happened that was so painful in their life that shaped their leadership? And to be able to share that in a safe environment. And if they're angry or if they're sad or whatever, express that emotion. In our programs, we really create that safety to get people to look at, not artificially, but to be honest with themselves about what were the painful events. For example, you lose your father when you were 17 years old, and suddenly you're thrown into being the leader of the family. You become very independent, and you become an independent loner. That affects your leadership. Can you go back and grieve the father you never had? or the father you lost, and then open that emotion up and be emotionally available. Great. It's interesting, George, um, and I agree with you on that whole pain, the painful parts and the ways they shape our leadership and that we have so few avenues to look at those except with a coach or with a classroom or with somebody outside. I often say to the people I'm coaching that if I don't make you cry or if you don't cry with me, it's not that I make you, then I haven't done my job. Yeah. As everybody's always apologizing for the tears, men and women, too, by the way. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You know, one of the things that often stands out is that leadership training is about looking at high performing leaders and what did they do, and now you imitate them. I think that's a big mistake. I think what we have to do is have each leader look at themselves, their life history. What have been their patterns of success and failure? Can they understand that? And can they reach down inside and open up their own authenticity so that the case is only one case, and that is themselves? Who are they as a leader from the time they were a child to the time they are whatever age, starting with parents, grandparents, teachers, etc.? We put too much emphasis on the external. This is what leaders do without looking to the authentic, what, what can you just unravel in yourself? Okay. So we always say there's one case we use, and that is you. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to state that. I like that one. Um, I personally believe that leadership is not one thing or the other at any rate. It's a balancing act of just about every idea, characteristic, behavior you can imagine. You can get too much of it and you get too little of it. And it's sort of adjusting that scale for the circumstances in the situation and you. So I think we're on the same page there. Um, we no, I, are. It's the flexi- It's the flexibility, right? You're talking about flexibility. I don't always have to be in control. Yeah. 
But you're right that that looking at the self and the life, life history and the successes and failures and the patterns of all of that and that drawing out of that of how it's defined who I am and how I lead. Okay, so let's shift and talk for just a couple minutes about the polar opposite of taking hostages, and that is inspiring. So I mm-hmm. you know, know that you think that leaders just are doing a lousy job at inspiration. Why? Why can't we get this right? Well, we just <laughs> Boy, that's that's a lecture in itself. No, the 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 the, the short version is this: because they're not inspired themselves. If you're not really finding value in what you're doing, if you're not really filled with joy in what you're doing, meaning, how are you going to inspire people to make more widgets, to do more advancement in their careers? It's the overfocus on extrinsic motivators. Now. David Brooks just wrote a new book, Two Mountains, in which he describes it very clearly. Young people have to develop their identity, but at some point, they're going to move from their identity, who they are, what they've accomplished, into why are they doing what they're doing. And many people are not inspiring because they're not inspired by what they're doing. I met a young doctor recently who just was absolutely engaging, and I asked him, uh, He's 45. I said, do you like being a doctor? you like your work? He said, it's the dream of my life. I always wanted to be a doctor, and I just love it. And this person was really going beyond and above the call of duty to give a sense of service. We don't have that many leaders going beyond the call, uh, the, 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 the limits of what they're doing for real meaning and purpose in, in inspiring themselves. So if you're not inspiring, I don't think you're actually leading. I think you're probably doing management or some other activity. But leaders inspire. And leaders have to work less because when they inspire, they're developing other people's talent who will do the work for you. I think sometimes leaders are just plain stupid because they do much more than they need to do. Inspire your employees. Give them the talent training. Let them become confident. And let them do, turn them loose. Let them do their job within a strategy and you just lay back and do nothing but help support <laughs> it sounds lovely <laughs> i think we're all afraid that if we do well, that well, we might not be important <laughs> yeah that's true or uh you know looking again at how men and women lead Actually, it's easier for women to do that than men. When when we do the research over here, and I'm not sure what, what track of research you're following, but we know that women are potentially far better leaders than men because they're able to create that emotional link or bond. But what they're missing is the ability to assert themselves, stand their ground, be able to engage in conflict as a woman. So... That generally has to develop through the history as they're growing up with someone who taught them how to stand their own ground. And that often comes in playing sports. So you get hit, you go to the ground, you get up and go on. What do men have to learn? Men have to learn how to bond. There are so many men who cannot bond, cannot connect, and so they're incapacitated in their leadership ability. And where does the man learn how to bond? Most people say the mother. That is in partly true, but it's really the father. Is there a father figure, grandfather, step-parent, whoever it might be, who teaches the young man how to be a man that includes caring and vulnerability? 
we see the violence in America. I mean, this is so sad. But we see the consistent lack of a father teaching these young, violent boys how to be a man without attaching to guns or without getting into violence. And we know from so many examples that when you allow that to happen, uh, boys have to be taught what it means to be a man, and we're not having that happen enough. So women out there, you are the future hope, but you have to be able to deal with conflict, stand your ground, fight back, push back, not allow yourself to be a hostage. And by the way, Wanda, I should add, how do you know when you're a hostage? One simple clue. You feel powerless. So even if you have a gun to your head, you don't have to feel powerless. You don't have to feel like a hostage. You can still talk. You can still interact. Okay. Um, I will just say that I think that there are men and women on both sides of the equation because I certainly meet men who have learned to do the bonding and the vulnerability and – you know, and I meet women who do not know how to do the bonding or the vulnerability. <laughs> I think you make an absolutely good point. I know them too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's talk about conflict for a couple minutes. Um, sure. If I could instill a capability in everybody I work with, it would be a stronger comfort in dealing with conflict. And I think particularly among women, there's this sense that I have to get into a fighting mode and I have to be really firm and really hard to stand my ground. And I think what you've said in the hostage negotiation in particular, and I imagine in conflict as well, that yes, I have to stand my ground, but it's not in a threat or in a push. It's in a different way. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to stand your ground? You, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Standing your ground doesn't mean you have to push and be negative. It means that you're clear in what you are thinking. You're clear in what you're feeling, and you're able to hold a a feeling against somebody who is attacking you. But it's flexibility. It's a little bit like a boxer or a dancer who's fighting. And I think we, we have to learn how to dance with conflict, uh, not, uh, creating punches, but being able to respond if you get it. And I think the first problem is we have to change the the view about conflict. I try to teach all the leaders that come into my arena is that conflict is good. Conflict is basically good because it's based on differences. Without difference, you don't have conflict. And then you have the tension, emotionality, disagreement, polarization, but only where bonding is broken. You see, you can have a big difference with someone, keep the bond, and you won't truly have a conflict. Or you can have a small conflict, break the bond, and you can have a huge conflict. So it's in the ability to hold that connection. And that comes back to relationship. I think, as you probably well know and teach, Wanda, is that there's a whole new drive in leadership development to think about relationship. And in a way, it's reinventing the wheel again. Uh, But driving change requires a relationship. Dealing with conflict requires a relationship. It's I and you. It's the ability to respect the other as a full party, not as a smaller or submissive part. Yeah, that's an interesting statement, respecting the other as a full party. Okay. 
I like that one. Yeah. Um, I also and, and even if you don't agree, you see, as a hostage negotiator, you have to go through training so that you can learn to differentiate between agreeing and accepting. I can accept anything anybody throws at me. They can call me whatever they want. I can accept, but I don't have to agree. They can have the most extreme psychotic ideas. I don't have to agree, but I have to accept it, and I don't argue with them. So why do you think every, nobody is trust? You can not trust anybody. Or why do you think everybody's out to kill you? So you want to get into that mindset, and you don't argue. You accept, and then you move through that process. That's what good conflict management is about. That, I think, is the essence of the skill um, in good con- Well, there's two parts <laughs> you said. One is this ability to be clear about what it is I'm thinking and feeling. Very yeah. clear. I'm clear in my own mind, and I'm firm in my own mind about that, but that I don't go into push or to be negative because we talked about the power of negativity. But then there's this notion of accepting that somebody may have a different view or a different motivation or a different whatever, and then the willingness to move through or work through. I think that's where the dance comes in. If you kind of get those parts in place, it seems to me like it ought to work better. I was back in the U.S. for much of the summer. I was shocked to see the lack of the ability to dialogue or just talk. Now, I grew up on a farm. We'd sit around a fire. We would have lots of differences of opinion. But you talked. You could accept another person's view. My goodness, the fights that escalate over, you don't agree with me, so something's wrong with you, and I immediately want to attack you. You have to agree with me or I feel abandoned. You have to agree with me or it threatens my identity. This is just appalling, and I'm sure you see that too. How do we have a dialogue with someone with a different opinion? It's really fundamental. I think it is truly fundamental and on all sides of the equation, and I happen to agree. I'm seeing this not just in the U.S., but around the world that we're, yeah. it's the polarization thing, but they were losing the ability to recognize somebody has a point of view. Whether I like it or not isn't the point. They have a point of view. And we can't listen to that one. Yeah. Okay. And you um, know, the other factor in that, yep. uh, uh, Wanda, is that I, I know the neuroscientists very, very well who are studying this. And the fact that our millennials, young people, all kind of people, are addicted to their iPhones and their technology. We're losing the ability to have a relationship and the ability to have a dialogue. Someone would send a message across the room rather than get up and walk over and discuss it with the other person. We have to come back to the importance of relationship. And this goes back to the parents. The parents who are making a big mistake with young people in not teaching early enough how to really be in relationship because many times the parents are not in relationship. I mean, you go to a restaurant, you see four people, all four are on their phones, a beautiful place. They're not enjoying it. They're just looking uh, at their iPhones. I'm going That's to not um, relationship. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to leave everybody to make their own judgments about how they do their own dinner and their own lives and sort of not, <laughs> not overlay my own opinion on that one. I will say. 
I think, where schools are beginning to help kids think about what it means to have a productive relationship and how do we do that and model that in school with our peer set are doing a fabulous job for the future of the world in general. I think it's an important one. But I'll also say anybody can learn it. I mean, we all have to. Um, and in defense of the millennials and the technology, just for the record. <laughs> am, I, am I too tough on the millennials? No, 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 no. I'm just not into attacking any generation for any reason. It's different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because if I go back to my childhood, my parents were convinced that I would never know how to relate to people because I spent so much time on the telephone. And how can you possibly relate to somebody on the telephone? And, you know, it wasn't so bad. It actually kind of worked out okay. So maybe they will be okay or maybe they will figure out in other ways. But I agree with you, this ability to do the relationship, especially when we don't see eye to eye and to find something in common ground. And as exactly as you said in the hostage negotiation, that connection, that bonding, the ability to ask questions. Okay, so George, before we close... Um, we have just a couple this minutes. This has been a delightful conversation. The best are always far-ranging. Do you have any final advice that you would offer for leaders, and not necessarily CEOs, but leaders in organizations? Well, leaders in for-profit NGOs, in schools, in medicine. I mean, leadership is just throughout all organizations. Number one is, as a leader, have an adventure. Make sure you enjoy it fully and that you not only are finding a purpose and meaning in it, but it brings a joy and not just happiness because happiness can be very temporary going from one success to another, but you feel the fundamental gratitude of having an adventure and life is an adventure. Number two, have something to fight for. The best leaders I see, they believe in something They believe in people generally, but they don't just want to make widgets. They want to do something that makes the world a better place. And thirdly, they see the beauty in life. They see the beauty around them, the beauty in themselves, the beauty in their employees. It's so sad to see the high number of people who are in negative mindsets. They cannot see the beauty around them. They cannot see the beauty in themselves. They cannot see the beauty in others. Those three things, I think, are fundamental to never really being a hostage and being able to hold your own as you maintain the drive towards your own vision. Okay, those are three fabulous ones. Have an adventure and fully enjoy it. To have something you believe in enough to fight for and to see the beauty in life. Um, it reminds me, last week or two weeks ago, I did an interview with Karen Dillon, and she and Clayton Christensen cool. have written a book yeah. on uh, Clayton's work called How Do You Measure Life? And it's sort of the yeah. same notion. It's that it's so easy yeah. for high performers to hit the next goal and the next goal and the next goal and yeah. the next goal, often extrinsic not personal motivations, and they come to, you know, 20 years later, and they have no sense of meaning. They're unhappy with the choices that they've made. And they also have three questions that are not unrelated to yours as well. Fabulous. Excellent. Well, well, their their work is absolutely great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so I, I might just put it by, if people are interested in knowing about more about this psychological hostage taking, my first book was Hostage at the Table, which describes chapter by chapter how 
the pillars of leadership can be used. And the second book was Care to Dare, How to Use Secure Bases to Never Be a Hostage. So uh, that's something that people are so moved to read. Excellent. Thank you, George. So Hostage at the Table <laughs> and Care to Dare. All right, my yeah. guest today is Joel, George Cole Reeser. He's at IMD in Switzerland in the business school. But as you've heard, he's been a hostage negotiator and he's been a frequent speaker, has his own talk show, call and talk show, and has multiple books. Um, I think, George, when I look back over this conversation, what I'm struck with out of all of it in every situation is this need to find a way to bond and connect with people, even when we fundamentally disagree. And we've talked about a lot of the elements that go into making that happen, but that's the core piece, the ability to ask the question yeah. in order to find something yeah. that we can connect on. Okay, George, Good. it's been a pleasure. Can I give you some feedback? Um, yes, please. Yeah, I, what I learned from you is the directness of your conversation. I hope your audience listens how you don't sugarcoat things. Uh, that's another thing about conflict. People who just sugarcoat and you don't know what they're saying. But you talk very directly, very clearly, easy to listen to. The person effect is fabulous. So uh, this has been a real joy, Wanda. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And on that one, I'm going to say, please join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.